Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. So for the past seven years or so, I've worked to improve human health and well-being by focusing on things like better nutrition, vigorous physical activity, sleep hygiene, stress management. And it turns out, according to today's guest, I may have been missing the most important determinants of health of all. Today I talk with Marta Zaraska, who is a repeat guest on the podcast. Last time she was here talking about her book, Meat Hooked. And this time we're talking about Growing Young, a book that is fun, fascinating, scientifically sound, and socially revolutionary. She argues that eating well and exercising are all well and good, but, and... Spending time with friends, cultivating a positive mental attitude, and helping others are far more powerful and enjoyable and contagious determinants of health. And as an added benefit, living an engaged, happy, and meaningful life can certainly cut down on cravings and binges and other self-destructive behaviors. The research that Zaraska shares on loneliness as a health threat is stunning. And given the current pandemic and anxiety and social distancing and lockdowns, I suspect that the long-term health effects of all this isolation and anxiety may prove just as devastating as the immediate physical harms wrought by the virus. So my biggest takeaway from growing young is a reminder that health is not found in individuals, but in collectives. As a health professional, I'm usually working with, you know, one client at a time and getting paid by that person. So it's easy for me to focus all my attention on their individual behavior, what they're eating, how much they're moving, whether they're meditating, getting sufficient sleep and all that. And this individualistic approach isn't based on science, but on an invisible paradigm of the hero pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Yes, it's great for individuals to improve their diets and lifestyles and... The big gains in human and planetary well-being will come from connections and relationships among us and not the individual acts of individual actors. A couple of quick announcements before we get there. Um, Use the Weight to Lose the Weight is a book that Josh Lajani wrote with me, and it's available as an audiobook, not on Audible, but from our website. And you can find it at sicktofit.com slash badass. And the subtitle, in case you're interested, is A Revolutionary New Way to Leverage the Strength You've Developed Carrying 50, 100, or even 150 or more extra pounds and Claim Your Badass Status as a Real Athlete. So to help you remember all that, just go to sicktofit.com slash badass, and you can download the audiobook read by Josh, mostly Josh, and a little bit of me in there as well. Second thing, if you like the podcast and you'd like to help support the mission of the show, you can do so at the tip jar, uh, plantyourself.com slash gift. You can make a one-time gift or become a monthly sustaining patron. Both are very much appreciated. All right, that's out of the way. Let's go to our conversation about growing young. Marta Zarasco, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me again, Howard. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm so enjoying uh, Growing Young, your, your latest book. And so I got to ask you, last time you were on, we were talking about uh, Meat Hooked, about sort of the, the science and evolution and physiology of the human attraction to, to meat. And this is a book basically saying that our attitudes, mindsets, happiness, optimism, um, 
altruism actually matter more for our health than all the the physical things, nutrition, exercise, all that stuff. I'm curious before we get into the book, what what was your evolution in terms of being interested in this story? I mean, it's not that far away if you think about it. You know, meat is also about nutrition. So I was writing about nutrition and health for quite a long time. I've been a science journalist for many, many years. And um, I've been covering these topics for the Washington Post and Scientific American. And so, so it came quite naturally uh, also out of the research on meat hooked because it was about exactly, you know, what, what makes us eat certain things, or how they impact our health or not, and, and so on and so on. And, you know, and meat is also part of the story of growing young as well, because uh, it, it is exactly about nutrition, but not only about nutrition exclusively, because especially when you think about, for example, vegetarian diets, uh, they are often not only about nutrition, right? They are also about, for example, ethical choices. And uh, these kind of ethical choices uh, that you can make for for example, give you give you purpose in life, can give you some kind of meaning and depth, and this actually things can make you healthier. So you know, uh -huh. so actually, you could even say that the vegetarian eating for ethical reasons uh, is actually healthy nutrition. So, from not just from you know the purely food perspective, but from this exactly purpose of life and meaning and kindness and uh, perspective. Right, but but in some way, in some ways, I can see how it's a um, a sort of direct follow-on. But in other ways, it's it's almost a repudiation of the way we think about health. So you know, I talk a lot about nutrition, and I try to be very holistic about it, but holistic within a limit. And so when <laughs> when you talk about you know like a, an ethical vegan who, who you know I might call a junk food vegan actually, you know, eating their vegan cheeseburger with vegan fries, but thinking about compassion for animals could be healthier than than a, a health obsessed vegan who's eating, you know, broccoli and kale and and thinking only of their own health like that. That's kind of a paradigm shifter. I mean, it's it's extremely hard to compare, you know, and whether who would be healthier in the scenario, but yeah. definitely there will be some boost to health of this kind of junk food vegetarian exactly for this purpose of kindness and compassion. These, these are drivers of health that can, have been, you know, in research confirmed over and over that it actually does physically boost our health, even on the levels of, for example, the leukocytes in your in your blood. So, you know, you know your, your white blood cells, like you can really see the changes even there or even on your gene expression. So these are very physiological changes that are happening. So just because, maybe just because of the kindness and compassion and, and uh, having purpose in life, for example, because you want to change uh, the world for the better. And this is really something that is extremely powerful in terms of health. Yeah. And I was, um, you know, like the first chapter, I kind of wanted to argue with you, like, <laughs> like it felt like, you know, where I've spent most of my time really looking at the effects of exercise, the effects of nutrition, um, that, you know, that overweight in any degree is, is unhealthy. And you kept sort of, you know, showing studies that the magnitude of effect of things like kindness, social support, not being lonely, being cuddled, you know, gazing at your pet, that these are actually like orders of magnitude bigger than the effects that we see from nutrition. And I, did, I didn't feel like you were 
you were writing from a doctrinaire, a dogmatic perspective. You were just looking at the science. And I found myself reluctantly getting convinced that the things that I've been focusing on with people might be a little bit minor league compared to what you're talking about. Did was there a point at your research where that sort of flipped for you? Were you surprised at what you found when you started looking at friendship, happiness, kindness, as opposed to nutrition? I mean, first of all, you know, I never say that nutrition exercises are not important. That's ex that's very important to state here because I still believe, and I, I eat very healthy and I, I exercise myself, that these things are important. Certain parts of our obsession about diet and exercise may be not so important. For example, chasing some kind of fat diets or superfoods and things like that. But in general, of course, healthy eating is very important. It just as you've mentioned yourself, we are completely forgetting about this whole other side of healthiness and what it means to live healthy and long and what actually boosts our physical health and longevity. And these are this kind of soft drivers and social side of it, which is at least as important and sometimes exactly more important. And um, I wouldn't say that, you know, that the shift came while I was writing the book. It actually came before I started writing the book, but um, it started all with um, especially one meta-analysis of studies that I've read and the, the scientists, they, they exactly put it, you know, black on white with all the numbers out there for you to see very clearly. When they compared, you know, dozens of different studies and they showed exactly that, uh, that the social drivers of health, so how socially, in, you know, included you are, how strong are your relationships, how strong are your networks, uh, that actually it does matter more to health than uh, your diet and exercise. And it can be even more important for your health than, for example, quitting smoking if you're a, a smoker who's, who, you know, who goes for one packet a day. So these are huge numbers we are talking about. And it all makes perfect sense. You know, there is nothing new agey about it. It's, uh, it's very much science based. And the reason for that is that we evolved this way because we are so, a social species that needs others to function properly. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I kept thinking as I was reading this book is that, you know, and I actually you know flipped to the index to look for it. And of course, it wasn't there was COVID-19. Like COVID-19 is kind of the villain of this book, even though it was published before the pandemic um, happened. And so, like you, you write that when we're lonely, um, evolutionarily, that means we're separated from our tribe, which means our, our defense against viruses goes down because we're, we're likely to get viruses from other members of our tribe and our inflammation increases because we're more likely mm -hmm. to get mauled by an animal and have a, a surface infection. So here we are lonely, I socially distanced, socially isolated more and more. And at, at, at exactly the time when we need our antiviral defenses to be their highest, they're they're dropping like that really shook me. I wonder, you know, what what have you been writing and thinking about since the pandemic? Because it seems directly related to this work. You know, I, I find myself actually going for growing young myself now looking for things I've written and uh, before seeing them from a completely different perspective, exactly because of coronavirus. As you've mentioned, I, I did all the writing before anybody heard uh, the word COVID-19. And um, but there are so many things in there exactly that relate to the current situation. And short term, it's pretty negative the way I see it. So definitely this kind of social isolation that we are doing and we have to be doing just to make it clear. I'm all for uh, it's all 
public distancing and safety uh, in this way. And But the thing is that, unfortunately, it has side effects. That there is no way around it. We are a social species, and uh, we when we socially isolated, we are more prone to viruses. There are even studies in which people were directly infected by the scientists uh, with cold viruses, so this kind of common rhinoviruses that we have. And those who were feeling the most lonely at the time were the most likely to come down with the virus. And there were also similar studies done with uh, the classic coronaviruses, so not the coronavirus, but the, you know, the old school ones that have been infecting us with colds for a very long time before. But we are also more vulnerable to them when we are stressed, when we are isolated, and so on and so on. So these things really have a huge impact. Even how often you get hugged has impact on your immune system and, and, and how you are prone uh, to viruses. Uh, so so definitely something not very good is going on here right now. But on the other hand, long term, I'm being more optimistic because I really do hope that what's happening right now, the the social isolation that we are going through and the suffering that is connected to it, that maybe it will help us reevaluate, re- re- you know, in the future and see our relationships as much more important than we did before. Because before coronavirus stroke, we weren't doing the best in terms of connection and uh, inclusion. And we were very, very lonely nations, you know, in the West, most of them. So so something was not going well. So hopefully it will shift our focus a little bit what's happening right now. Mm, I hope I hope you're right. I, you know, I was also worried to read that the less social contact we have, the, the, the less variety we have in our microbiome, right? Which <laughs> yes. it, it makes so much sense. Like I could I couldn't believe that I'd never thought of that before, that one of the benefits of being around lots of people is that we get all these different bugs and they all, you know, make a very robust ecosystem within us. Um, like, is there a danger that after COVID, you know, if COVID goes away, that now we all have these less variable gut bacteria that they want us to stay loners, like like we're less less socially interested because of our gut bacteria? That's actually an extremely interesting question, but this is to be posed to some scientists who will have to research it because obviously before we had no situations like this, right? So we have no idea what's really going to happen. What I'm hoping for is that this situation is uh, short term enough that it won't impact us permanently. All this kind of uh, social isolation, usually it needs quite some time to have negative impact on your health. So let's hope uh, that it's too too short, basically, to, to hurt us too much. Uh, and exactly this refocusing can actually boost our health in the long term. So maybe maybe just not long enough, hopefully. Right. And you write that, you know, loneliness has this survival drive to, to make us want other people. Could you could you kind of just describe what you write about is called like Savannah survival mode? Because I just found that so <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. So basically, you know, when when we were with our tribe or even these days when we are with our tribes, or with our friends or family, uh, we are much more prone to viruses, as we very well know now that when you're surrounded by other people, you are much more likely to catch a virus. And this was the same. Uh, this was also true for our ancestors on the savannah. When they were in the tribe, the viruses were much more likely to spread. So their vi- antiviral response was on functioning on its top level was at its best, right? But the thing about our bodies is that they they try to conserve energy. So if something is not really needed, uh, it gets turned down so that something else can be pushed up. So in 
in a scenario when our ancestors would find themselves suddenly alone on the savanna, for example, because they got ostracized, uh, excluded from the community, um, then they would no longer be so prone to viruses because they were away from other humans, but much more likely to get wounded exactly or fall and cut themselves, which would be potentially infected by bacteria, which is a very different immune response than that to viruses. So their, their antiviral response would go down and their antibacterial response would go up. And this antibacterial response is inflammation. Which these days, you know, we don't really, when we're lonely, we are not much more likely to be wounded and infected by bacteria. Uh, there are no lions prowling against, uh, you know, for lonely Manhattan, people in Manhattan. Uh, but uh, the inflammation, you know, when it becomes chronic, uh, it's not good for us as we know it. You know, this causes long term a lot of uh, diseases such as diabetes and cardiovascular problems and so on and so on. Uh, so this is this kind of, you know, shift from one to another that our body does, still does because our bodies haven't got the memo that we are no longer in the savanna. So uh, so something that was very adaptive in the past is no longer adaptive. Right. And something else that really blew my mind is you write that loneliness can lead to poor sleep. Can, can you explain yeah. that, that connection? I mean, it's also very logical when you again think from the savanna perspective, uh, so when you are lonely, that means that you were again excluded from the tribe. Uh, maybe you had a fight with the alpha male, whatever, and he, you know, you got ostracized, told to leave, and uh, you are suddenly all alone. Uh, and now imagine yourself being alone on the savanna. It's dangerous. There are lions out there. There are other, you know, saber-toothed cats or uh, or you know enemy tribes and so on and so on so of course you are not going to sleep well you're going to your sleep is going to be fragmented so that in case something happens you are const constantly ready to for an attack and this, the same thing happens still to us these days again because our bodies think they're on the savanna so when you are lonely you are not sleeping well because you are ready for an attack any moment uh doesn't make sense again in you know in most western societies um but that's just the way we still are. Mm. So it's just it's just another sort of mismatch between our evolutionary wiring and our modern world, which I, you know, I talk about all the time in terms of, again, diet and exercise. Like we are meant to, you know, to crave high calorie foods because they're survival foods. And now we have a mismatch because they're always available where we're sort of wired to crave rest over exertion because we never know when we'd need it. And you say like we are basically living many of us in, in our Western you know, civilization in constant savanna survival mode, which I guess was supposed to last for maybe like a week at the most until yeah. you crawled back to your tribe and begged forgiveness and got, uh, you know, Re or reintegrated. <laughs> yeah, or got eaten, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> exactly. And um, there's certainly a problem. We, we just like you, you're saying, we evolved to crave high calorie foods. We also evolved to crave very close connection with fellow human beings. And we are still that way. And if you are highly connected like this with deep, 
you know, ties, bonds of trust as well. The trust is very important here, uh, that you feel that the others are, you can, that you can trust the other people uh, who are surrounding you. Uh, then everything is fine and your body is functioning properly. So although, for example, we have uh, several so-called social hormones, such as oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, vasopressin, for example, which connect the way we feel about other people, uh, the connections we are experiencing, and how our physiology functions. Uh, there are other, also other systems like the fight and flight response, uh, the, the stress uh, system that's uh, evolved exactly to protect us on the savanna. It also functions uh, in a better way when we are surrounded by people by whom we can trust and who can trust us. Mm. Yeah, and again, the, the, this idea that being lonely predisposes us to fight or flight because we're more likely to be attacked. So I, it never occurred to me that loneliness was actually a trigger of stress. It certainly is. You know, loneliness is actually the biggest obstacles to good health you could uh, get these days to the point that, for example, in the UK, uh, they now recognize that and uh, they have a, an actual minister for loneliness in mm. their government uh, because they also see it as a big health problem. Yeah. So one, one of the, the things you talk about in the book is the vagus nerve. And I and I saw that in the uh, acknowledgments you or uh, you mentioned um, Stephen Porges, um, yeah. who's and you, you don't really t you don't talk about like I looked I couldn't find him in the uh, in the index or polyvagal theory. Um, he's he's been a guest on this show and his work has really influenced my my work with with clients. Um, was there a, did you see a connection between kind of his his view of the nervous system and this idea of, of you know mammalian co-regulation and, and your work so yes uh, so he did consult me on the book as well and i had more written in the original version about the polyvagal theory as well but unfortunately it was just going too deep and too much and i had to cut it out in oh. the <laughs> final version of the book uh, but yes i do write about the vagus nerve so you know the longest of the nerves that are merged directly from our brain and which are responsible for your breathing and swallowing digestion and so on and this vagus nerve is exactly one of the reasons why our socialized, our emotions, our mental health and states are connected to our physiology. Uh, so this is why I write about it. And so it's also most likely connected to, for example, the most dramatic uh, expression of how our mental health can impact our physiology. And that's uh, the case of the voodoo deaths uh, that are known in certain tribes of Africa or the islands of the Pacific, when person who thinks they are under a curse, actually, because they believe so much in the curse, they actually die. So, you know, which is the most extreme uh, show of how our mind can influence our body. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm wondering, you know, so, you know, to me, when I think of someone who's lonely, I don't think of a person in fight or flight, like, you know, raised, anxious. I think more of what Porges calls like a fold or, you know, where the vagus nerve just ramps up the, the parasympathetic so much that it's almost, you know, like a, a voodoo death. Um, mm. does, does that happen? Like, can loneliness, uh, you know, redline us beyond fight or flight into kind of a giving up a dissociation? I mean, probably when it becomes extremely chronic and extremely serious, you know, it's, the, you know, that's obviously also connected with depression, right? So, so these things are 
all extremely interconnected is one thing I also discovered when writing about, you know, writing growing young, that uh, I was saying before about the social hormones, we were talking about the fight and flight response. So the, the HPA axis, right, or if somebody wants a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, uh, and uh, exactly the vagal ner- nerve and the microbiota as well, it's all interconnected, right, you cannot separate one from another, it's all interacting together and uh, creating either either for your benefit or you know or creating health problems so there is you cannot separate one from another right and another thing i found really interesting is the idea of social inclusion and physical temperature and i remember i read a book about marketing several years ago that talked about like temperature can make people like you more. So since then, I sign all my emails warmly, Howard, <laughs> like That's I, just, a good one, yeah. I just never stopped doing it. It's, it. I don't know if it's sort of you know creepy and manipulative, but um, like you, you, I love how you explained, uh, you know, the, the connection um, in terms of energy savings. Can you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So when you think about animals and, you know, humans as well, uh, to save energy and to keep each other's warm, uh, we huddle. And just like penguins, for example, in the Antarctic, when it's really cold, uh, to they huddle to keep each other's warm, which also helps them save energy, which otherwise would have been burned for warming the body. And enables them to survive winter. And many other species do that as well. And humans too. When you think back even to Middle Ages or probably even 19th century, uh, people used to sleep together to keep each other warm and save energy. Uh, and we still have this connection because we evolved this way. It goes uh, to the insulin in our brain and also probably to the oxytocin system uh, that connects the per- perception of temperature, physical temperature, and how connected and bonded we are with others. Because you have to trust other people that they will warm you up. So when you feel that you are surrounded by other people you, you trust, you can actually actually per- start perceiving temperature as being higher. And the same goes the opposite as well, way as well. So when you are feeling all warm, because, for example, you are taking a hot bath or because you are holding a cup of hot tea, suddenly you start feeling more connected to other people and less lonely, which is actually a very quick fix if you want to make yourself, for example, during this crazy coronavirus times to feel a little bit less lonely, you know, you can try holding a hot cup of tea and it should at least ameliorate mm. things just a tiny little bit. Mm. And I guess, this, you know, so, so many societies have rituals, social rituals around warm beverages. You know, there's not that many cultures that have like, you know, smoothie ceremonies. Yes, exactly. There is something about this hot beverage. And there is actually plenty of research that shows these these effects, that even holding something hot can be a hot pack, hot uh, cup of mm, coffee or tea or something, but you really have to hold it in your hands. That um, through the perception in your skin, you know, and the insulin, it really gives you the the feeling of connection with other people. Right. So there's one other um, study that I really thought, like, I, I love that a lot of the studies you talk about are just so clever. Like, I'm like, wow, how do they think of that? And the one I'm thinking of is the split video study where they looked at, you know, people could, were watching two videos simultaneously, one with sort of positive social signals and the other with negative social signals. Can you, can you describe that a little bit? I'm not sure which one you're talking about, because there were quite a few studies that had oh. a similar well, this, design. So this was like they were looking at like lonely people would focus on on the ah, more negative. Yes. 
Yes, so uh, so there there is exactly research showing that when people are lonely, they're chronically lonely. So it's not that you just feel lonely today, yesterday you were fine, and today you're feeling a little bit lonely. That's not enough. It has to be chronic already. So when you are chronically lonely, uh, our perception changes, and we start paying more attention to so-called social threats. Uh, so any kind of potential signs that people may be against you or disliking you or planning something mean to you let's say uh, and uh, it happens in a blink of an eye basically but we really can fixate our eyes fixate more on f any signs of something negative which is actually a problem because when your mind after being lonely for some time switches into this mode it's harder to get out of loneliness because uh, we don't we, if you if you concentrate only on negative things you know it's much harder to connect with other people so it's very important to realize that this can happen so that, that it's not that the world is out to get you you may just be perceiving it that way because you're lonely right and i guess the idea is if when, when you're lonely you're separated from your tribe so the the humans you come across are likely not your friends or more, exactly. more, more likely to be dangerous. Exactly. And it doesn't really work well in modern times, you know, and generally, you know, it's it's there are lots of people with whom you can connect. It's not just your tiny little mm. tribe that's that's fine. Everybody else is trying to kill you. Right. <laughs> right. So one of the things that really, really shook me about the book is the way I have, I think, in a way, my whole industry has looked at health is it's a, it's a very American way, which is it's like rugged individualism. Like if, if the important things are the way I eat and, and exercising, then I can do just as well during a pandemic as before. Right. Mm -hmm. I can I you know I'm in control of what I eat. I can shop for this. I can control my my cravings. I can, you know, force myself to get out of bed and go for a run or, or go to the gym. And the things, the determinants of health that you're talking about don't work in that paradigm, that they're 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 really a, a communal solution. The, the problem is communal and mm -hmm. the solution has to be communal. Um, how do you how do you think about that in terms of of helping us? I mean, so definitely, you know, you're right that this kind of thinking about help us everything, you know, what I what I'm ingesting or what kind of exercise I'm getting for my body. It's very kind of inwards oriented. It's very much about the I and the things I'm talking about, the soft drivers of health, like kindness, friendship, uh, volunteering, uh, community. These are very much looking about looking outwards, right? About looking at in for for other people, uh, not at yourself, right? Um, and uh, certainly there are challenges these days. But on the other hand, I still believe there are plenty of things we can be doing. Uh, even such as simple things, for example, as uh, calling people instead of texting. Uh, I cite this uh, one study in my book as well, uh, in, which showed that when we uh, text, we don't get the same boost of the oxytocin hormone, so the so-called love hormone, which also has very physiological effects, positive physiological effects on us as well, uh, that we get when we call people and we actually hear their voice. Uh, so there is a difference. And uh, it's very small thing, may, it may appear, but if you are prone to only texting or messaging people over social media, you don't get the same benefits. Uh, and, you know, there are also other ways in which you can connect to your community, for instance. You can uh, you can be kind to others also in a safe way. You can uh, leave, uh, you know, homemade uh, cookies for your neighbor on the on their doorstep and, uh, and it's safe. You know, there are, there are really things 
things you can still be doing. You can donate money to charity. You can volunteer your time online. There, there are things you can be still doing. Right. But as you know, as you said, like one of the, the reasons for optimism is that this might, you know, shake us to realize how um, unsocial we have. We our society is I think you, you, you quote in the book that 25% of, of, of uh, US citizens don't know the name of their next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you write also about the decreasing percentage of Americans with uh, healthy attachment, right, which is basically, mm -hmm. you know, the way you attach to a, the primary parent caregiver, whether it was, uh, you know, healthy or, or avoidant or, uh, or, or or neurotic, basically, um, that it's not it's, you know, it's it's not just covid. It's if, if, if we could, you know, erase the last six months from all our memories and just go back to the way things were, we would still be a society profoundly antisocial. Right. Mm. So so what do we I mean, what do we do about that? Right. Because it's it's not it's not something that an individual can just solve. Like I'm going to be more social by myself. No, but this is the whole point. Kindness really spreads. And uh, the beautiful thing about it is that if, you know, if people exactly individually just start thinking that way, it actually really spreads fast in the way that what I'm writing in my book, you know, in the way that, for example, eating broccoli doesn't. Uh, if you start eating healthy today, it certainly won't spread around your community. But kindness hmm. amazingly does. There was once uh, one uh, case I, I cite um, that happened in Canada uh, at Tim Hortons drive-thru when over 200 people paid forward the bill of the person um, of the driver behind them, you know, over 200 people is unbelievable. Uh, so and there is lots of research showing that one kind act really spreads around. And the same thing about community involvement and friendship and, and things like that, it really, really spreads. So the, the best way to start is just doing it yourself and, and wait for the results. Mm. And I think you know, and one of the things you do argue about is that a lot of the time we spend on our health obsessions that give us very minimal or non-existent or even negative returns in the case of supplementation, if we just shifted some of that energy, time and money to these pro-social uh, activities and behaviors would give would would give us a great payoff. Um, sorry, I got a, I got a little bit lost. Can you can you repeat this question again? Yeah, th that uh, I think one of the points you make is, you know, you make fun of like goji berries and you mm -hmm. talk about, you know, certain vitamin supplementation with vitamins that can actually be harmful, that we can we obsess over things that either give us no return or mm -hmm. a negative return or very small return. If we just shift the, that energy into pro-social behavior, we not only get a return for ourselves, we can almost, you know, we could spark a revolution. And it's much more pleasant, basically, you know, it's so much more fun to be with your friends or engage yourself in some local event, for example, than to read on social media about another miracle food or, or supplement or uh, checking which new fitness app to download. It's just more pleasant. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the way we we are wired. So it gives us not just health benefits, but also mental health benefits, happiness, basically. Right. And in, in some ways, you know, you, you talk about the importance of eating healthy in some ways for a lot of people eating healthy and being social at the moment are in conflict. So I've coached people 
who decided that they couldn't go to the break room at work because there was always a box of Krispy Kremes <laughs> or they had to stop hanging out at the bar with their friends because they were just going to drink and and eat, you know, buffalo wings. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether <laughs> the cure wasn't worse than the, the disease. I would probably argue as well as if somebody stopped going to the social places in their office because there are donuts there, this is, this is very sad and most likely not good for their health at all. Probably the one donut is not hurting them as much as the lack of social connection and the same with, you know, not seeing your friends at the bar or wherever they are hanging out just because they may be snacking or something unhealthy. This is exactly the kind of misplaced worry. Um, but also exactly, you know, the, the, the time, we can save so much time uh, when we free the energy. We, when, you, when you think about it, you know, healthy eating is actually very simple. I just love how Michael Pollan wrote about it. You know, he said, just eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And that's basically it. There is not that much more to it. The thing is that, you know, people, also science journalists, unfortunately, uh, we, because we have to sell stories, so we always look for something novel and exciting because eat more veggies doesn't sell articles, you know, it doesn't <laughs> sell, nobody wants to read about it anymore. It's boring. But if you find some novel, I don't know, nuts from Africa that has some, I don't know, some kind of amino acid in it, a lot of it, you can really sell it everywhere. It will make headlines, you know, but boring apples and carrots don't, even though they are perfectly good for you. Right. And, you know, so I've been thinking about like so, so much like social change has bubbled up since the pandemic. And I'm wondering, you know, people are becoming socially engaged around racial justice. Uh, there's been much more talk about, you know, universal health care, universal basic income, things that were basically completely ignored. And some of it is self-interest, but some of it is I think people have more time, you know, that, that capitalism isn't uh, sucking their attention all the time. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned sort of, you know, licking your Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram addictions. Is there something about our society that is preventing us from taking advantage of all these pro-social determinants of health that you write about? I mean, it's definitely easier in certain cultures than others, right? So uh, I myself, I live in France, so it's a little bit different here. And people, for example, eating is a very much different story. I also, I lived in the US as well for a while. I'm Canadian. So I can really see the differences, how the French approach eating, right? And for example, we often talk about this famed Mediterranean diet, and uh, we always talk about uh, the kind of nutrients there are in the diet. So how much wine there is and phytonutrients in the wine and uh, olive oil and whether they eat cheese or not and how much carbo, how, you know, what kind of carbohydrates and so on and so on. But the truth is that, for example, the Mediterranean diet is also about how they eat, not about what they eat. It's about the social part of eating, which is extremely important and completely overlooked when you think about it. Uh, whereas all these cultures, exactly the Italian, Spanish, French, uh, where they eat this um, Mediterranean diet, they also are extremely we could even say obsessed about eating socially with other people, slowly taking their time at a table and talking at the same time. And this is something, you know, when you try to replicate the Mediterranean diet by eating it alone in your car, <laughs> it just won't have the same effect. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I and I can feel how guilty I have been of that. You know, writing about holism in nutrition, the, but the holism stopped at well, let's not take the, the 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 nutrients that we identify in foods and put them in a pill because that won't work. Mm-hmm. But also recognizing that part that food is is part of a social context. We the food changes based on how we're breathing, whether you know mm-hmm. whether we're getting enough. Uh, you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide, whether our stress hormones are high or low at the moment, like digest the food is the the smallest part of the process of of digestion and metabolism and catabolism. Hmm. And exactly. And when you you know, when you think about eating socially, it's um, it's extremely powerful for exactly getting the boost of all these hormones I was talking about, the social hormones uh, that you get from the connection and uh, it, when you do it by yourself, it's just it's just not the same and it will never will. Right. So another thing that really that really struck me hard is you, you write um, a lot about empathy. And there's the, some studies that showed that when the mother is stressed, so when the mother's cortisol levels are increased, that increases the amount of testosterone that the fetus is bathed in, which reduces empathy when that fetus grows up to be a human. And, you know, so given a society in which we are routinely stressed, that seems like a very dangerous and sad loop to have, you know, because the less empathy you have in a society, the more stressed people are going to be. Yeah, it is. It is dangerous. That's for sure. And as you mentioned before, there are studies showing that empathy levels in American society have been dropping over the last decades. So that's very worrisome. But on the other hand, empathy is only part due to your uh, genes or your prenatal and prenatal environment. It's also basically due to practice. Uh, so empathy can be worked on and uh, and uh, strengthens in a very similar way. You can strengthen your muscles. Not also not everybody's born with the same. Um, potential for having strong muscles, right, and the mm. same build. But uh, we still don't say, okay, you know, I was born this way, I'm not gonna even try <laughs> having good muscles, we still go and exercise. And this should be the same way uh, with empathy, even you if your mom was very stressed in pregnancy, even if you even if she smoked uh, cigarettes, which actually also affects, unfortunately, negative, neg- negatively, uh, empathy in, in the offspring, mm. uh, you still have a very big chance of uh, developing your empathy and uh, this, the, those simple ways just to exercise it by trying to look at the world from the perspective of other people. So, for example, if you are in a restaurant, you can try to imagine what is your waiter feeling? What is he thinking? Is he Does he look stressed? Is he having a good day? You just do it for, you know, like that three minutes, right? Just mm. practice this muscle. and Or how is your, you know, try to see the world from your friend's perspective or your spouse's perspective just for a couple of minutes a day. That's funny because I, I used to play this game when I went to social events that I was bored at. Like, <laughs> like I wasn't, you know, I was sort of invited and I went. Um, I would like look around and try to identify the one person who is the star of this movie and the mm-hmm. rest of us are extras and then try to figure out like what the movie was like. It might have been like the the drummer in the band at the bar mitzvah. It's like this movie yeah. is about that person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it made the time go by much faster. And you could have practiced your empathy at the same time, see? <laughs> yeah. So what, one thing that um, you write that made me really happy. So I've, um, I'm a runner. And until 
last year I was, you know, racing. So I'm always going out with my with my watch and a heart rate monitor and and my running was all about training. Since there's no races to run in and since I have no contact with anybody, I've been running with uh, a neighbor of mine and we, mm -hmm. we, we don't arrange it. We just we're, you know, we're synchronized now that we we're almost like five days a week. We'll see each other. And he's 70 and mm -hmm. he, he runs much slower than I would normally run. And I've so I've been coming home from and like posting 13 minute mile runs, five mm -hmm. or six miles. And you and you write that synchronous movement can be really good for us. And we're, exactly. you know, we were running this morning and I was noticing without trying to make it happen that we were both running left, right, left, right um, mm -hmm. in, in synchrony. So how, how does that work? How does me, you know, just running with Gary at a much slower pace improve my my health and potential for longevity? So synchrony is extremely fascinating and extremely powerful as well for our health. So it applies not only to sports, but also to, for example, singing, so choir singing. Uh, and as long as you don't practice during the coronavirus, you know, in a closed uh, space, badly ventilated. And um, and also, you know, for, for example, for dancing, so like line dancing or Macarena type dancing. So whenever we synchronize uh, our body movements with other people, uh, the benefits to our health of the social hormones are basically double. So we are talking about endorphins here. So this kind of hormones that also give you the runner's high, uh, the pleasure that you get from after the run, right? And also there are natural painkillers as well. They have very physiological effects on your body as well, very positive ones. So, um, so when you do things in synchrony with somebody else, the, the boost of endorphins, so your runner is high, you could say, is exactly double that's been calculated in studies. So hmm. so definitely running with your neighbor, you know, and of course there is also the social part to it, right? So that you are making fr friends and being with someone. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all that uh, you running slower with a neighbor in synchrony is actually better for you overall, for both of you, than if you were to run faster, but completely on your own. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels that way. There's and there's another buddy of mine uh, whom I run with less frequently, who runs really fast. And he I like running with him because I run faster than I would ordinarily. And I keep wondering, like, so I'm running by myself and thinking, well, let me let me run at Eamon's pace. And, mm -hmm. and I can't or it's really hard or I can't keep it up. But when I'm running with him, I can go four or five miles. And yeah, I'm out of breath. And yeah, it's a struggle. But because I'm running with another person, it, it's not just it's not just in my head that it's easier, right? No, it's not. It's it's, it's our we are also uh, our bodies are wired also to want synchrony. So this is, for example, when there are two people in rocking chairs, for example, after a while they they will synchronize. It's a very natural thing for 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 us. Also, we even synchronize on the level of our brain waves, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. So which 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 kind of uh, goes into a loop again. So the more your bodies uh, when you are another, with another person, you will synchronize and the more you synchronize, the more you will crave the synchrony and it will give you the boost of endorphins and so on. So on. So it all reinforces itself. Um, but it's a very natural state for us to be in synchrony. Mm, yeah, and it, and it feels so good. I, I, I love the study um, of the people dancing with headphones on and they're either all listening to the same thing or listening to separate music. Can you 
Do you remember, yeah. do you remember the outcome of that study? Yeah, that's the, the study called Silent Disco. It's from the <laughs> Oxford University, and uh, they exactly they 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 had people either they taught them certain dance moves, and they were either supposed to to dance in synchrony or completely asynchronously, or uh, either the same music or different music. But anyway, the 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 takeout from this was exactly that dancing generally makes people feel more bonded and closer to the other people so it is already good for us to be dancing with other people uh, but if you do it in synchrony then the effects are even more powerful right and the same goes for singing so singing with other people always gives us a boost and it's both both of physiological purely physiological boost for example on this kind of uh, endorphins like there are the pain killing properties um, but also on the on the kind of mental so you feel more bonded you feel that you trust these people more you feel closer to them and uh, but when you do it in synchrony it's even more powerful which you know makes me think may, maybe these days we could try like you know singing singing together over zoom or something you know like preferably you know some kind of synchronous karaoke or, and it would definitely maybe feel weird at first but uh, could certainly make us feel more connected and less lonely and give us all the boosts of the things we need yeah, I have I, uh, I have a lot of musician friends who are who are wishing for something for a platform better than Z Skype or Zoom that would actually allow for for synchrony in music making because the, the lag drives them crazy. Yeah, yeah, I can totally imagine that. <laughs> um, so and something else that I found shocking was that certain pain medications can actually reduce our ability to feel empathy. Uh, yes, that's a, that's a small side effect I am writing about. That uh, unfortunately, uh, I think it was ibuprofen, right? That um, can, uh, if you mm. if you take a pill, it's been shown to affect our our capability of not only feeling our own pain but also pain of other people. So yes, be, beware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just speaks to the power of of knowledge and intention. Like uh, before reading your book. I was still subject to all of these influences, but it was on a very sort of haphazard, random other people's agenda basis, right? Like I'm mm -hmm. just I'm just being affected by all this stuff. I'm being, you know, thrown around by my evolutionary heritage. I'm being affected by other people. But once I understand this, you know, I think this is some, one of the things you're saying is cause for optimism that we can actually flex our muscles to change our environments and to change society. I, I totally believe it. And, you know, and as I said, it's, it's pleasurable as well. It's 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 fun to do those things. And um, just like, you know, I'm quite certain you're you're deriving quite a lot of pleasure from running with Gary. Right. So yeah. um, the, and this kind of changes are and they are much easier to do when you think about it. It's not it's not that complicated. It just change it's just the case of changing your perspective and thinking of certain things as health behaviors which you know even for me i'm also a runner and uh, i also race sometimes maybe probably not as often as you do but i do and uh before uh the coronavirus struck this year i was actually planning to run a half marathon and uh, i was planning to start preparing for it and so on and so on and then, then i then I realized that if I were to prepare for that race, uh, it would take me a lot of time. And that time 
would have to be taken away from uh, from the time I spend with my husband, uh, for example, sitting on the couch and chatting. Mm. And uh, because now I see this time sitting on the couch with him also as a health behavior, not just some kind of, you know, nice chilling out kind of time, but also an actual proper health and longevity behavior, uh, I decided not to race. I'm still running, but not as much as I would have if I were preparing for a half marathon, uh, just because I see the kind of um, the benefits also there. And I don't feel guilty about sitting on the couch so much because I know it's good for my health too. Mm. Yeah. And I guess what that just brings up for me is, so when we are socially engaged, when we're empathetic, when we're happy, when we're altruistic, our our non health behaviors aren't as bad, right? Like, like if you were sitting on the couch eating Doritos and I mean, still better not to eat, you know, junk food. Definitely. It's always best to, you know, to, if you can, then please. Right. Try. But, but I'm thinking it's that, not like, you know, if you're the synchrony, then you're allowed to eat, you know, all the junk food you can. No, of course not. Uh, it's better to still eat healthy. But uh, it's just the, it's just a matter of, you know, proportions and being obsessive right. or not obsessive. Just as I said, carrots and apples yeah. are perfectly fine. Yeah, but what, I, what I'm getting at, I think, is that we are drawn to the junk food to make up for the lack of everything you're writing about. Definitely as well. You know, it's it's common knowledge that we uh, we snack when we are, uh, you know, to eat our emotions. Right. And definitely if you also reconnect with other people, uh, you will feel happier and more mentally uh, satisfied. And maybe the, the, the drive to snack on unhealthy foods will also diminish as a side effect. Yeah. yeah. So the, the part I liked the best is the, the section on volunteering. Um, and you say, you, know, you say that volunteering reduces mortality between 22 and 44 percent, which is you know bigger than any food study I've ever seen. Um, and so can you explain like the, the biological or evolutionary mechanisms by which taking care of others makes us well? So most likely it is to do with our so-called caregiving system. So this is something that we evolved, uh, again, going back to the savannah, always somehow end there, uh, to be able to care for others uh, who depend on us, usually our children. So basically when you, when you have to take care of someone who depends on you, uh, when you think about it, it's best if you are calm and uh, emotionally stable, you know, anxiety and panic and this kind of uh, hyperventilation kind of state of stress is not good for when you have to take care of someone else. Uh, and this is why there is plenty also of animal studies showing the same thing, that when um, when we or other animals care for their little ones, uh, our stress systems calm down. For example, we have less of the stress hormone cortisol in our bodies, and we, we just generally chill to be able to provide care. Uh, and uh, while this evolved to, to for us to be able to care for our, mostly for our children, uh, it also works the same way when we care for, let's say, our neighbors or when we volunteer for some charity organization, the same caregiving system turns on and this fight and flight response system calms down and uh, becomes healthier and our cortisol response becomes healthier. And uh, in result, we live longer. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's so interesting that so, so much of 
like in our culture, I, I sort of think of like parenting as a very optional thing. Like, it, but but when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, being a parent and being a child is sort of the central thing. <laughs> And that even if we're if we choose not to be parents or even if we're if we're adults in relations with others, that's all informed by by that paradigm. Right. Because that was the that was the basis of of survival. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in the past, obviously, there was really no choice, right? And uh, and uh, nature is all about passing on your genes. So this caring for others is, is extremely important. And uh, but as you say, you know, nowadays, uh, this don't have don't have to be your children. It can be caring for some arts program in your in your community. You know, like it can be very very different things. It can be caring for the environment or caring for animals, or dogs in the shelter, right? It's it's just the same kind of system of caregiving that uh, that activates when when we engage in this kind of activities. Right. So you, you take a, a lovely detour into the phenomenon called hysterical strength. Yeah. Right. So how, how, what is that and how does that relate to altruism? Yeah, so historical strength, you know, it is when you hear about stories when somebody, for example, lifted a car uh, from, from, from a person, right? So somebody suddenly being capable of basically taking a car up and lifting it was extremely heavy and in normal situations people are not capable of doing that and there were some uh, stories when people who have done such a such a thing later on tried without the motivation of saving someone's life and it didn't work anymore so there is something going on that when we are in this extreme stress to save someone uh, suddenly our muscles get this extremely powerful injection uh, that helps us uh, gain this uh, this um, extreme strength of course it's ex it's very hard to study this phenomenon because uh, you cannot really replicate it in the lab you cannot make it because you would have to make it real right and if it's not real then it doesn't work and you also don't want anybody to think it's real you know just even faking someone uh, a situation when someone thinks that a child is on their car it's just unethical so you just cannot you cannot really study in the lab but um, scientists are suspecting that it has to do something with adrenaline and um, basically all this kind of hormones um, that activate um, when we take care of other people as well and um, and the stress systems uh, that give us this powerful boost to sudden boost to our muscles mm. Um, and, and there's some, you know, some interesting uh, physiological data. I think you, you quote a, st a study that says that people who donate to money uh, who are, I think were given like 40 bucks to donate somewhere had a drop in their blood pressure that was equivalent to, to going on a med. <laughs> Yes, that's right. There, there, there are studies showing that um, donating money or volunteering as well uh, can impact your blood pressure. So, and also the muscle strength as well. There was another study I read about that uh, when people donated money, uh, they could actually hold for longer to a weight. Uh, I think it was to five pounds or something. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, I think it was five pounds. Anyway, they, their muscles basically got stronger right after donating money because they felt good about it. They felt uh, this kind of boost of caring, uh, which of course was not as strong as uh, when people have to get someone from underneath the car, but uh, on a smaller scale, it also works. So I just kind of like to joke that if you want to uh, show off to someone how strong your muscles are in the, mm -hmm. at the gym, for example, first go on your own Online and donate a little bit of money, you know, <laughs> you should get a little bit of boost for that. It's a legal doping. So, 
And, you know, that's funny because that that study, I think, was a, a, to give a dollar to UNICEF before doing the, the second trial. But you also yeah. had another study that compared people uh, donating directly to UNICEF with a, a very general philosophical message of we help make the world a better place versus a UNICEF associated organization called Spread the Net that bought mosquito nets to protect children from malaria and the people reported being happier donating to the thing that 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 helped that, that helped people rather than an idea or a philosophy or a movement. I mean, the general idea here is that um, not all donations are, or volunteering are created equal and uh, that um, we get bigger boosts uh, for our happiness and our physical health uh, when we donate or volunteer for very specific causes. So not something extremely general, but when we can really feel that we are making a change on, on very individual level. Uh, so in case of spread the net, you, people could easily imagine, you know, the, the mosquito nets they are buying for with the money, right? And the children they are saving. So if we can really have this kind of very individual connection to the case, um, that then it really works uh, much better than some kind of generalized idea of exactly helping humanity. Yeah. And I, and I started feeling a little bit cynical when I read that because I was remembering from my childhood the, the Save the Children ads with Sally Struthers, the actor, you know, crying and mm. with pictures of individuals that was that was used very, um, you know, deliberately uh, to get people to donate more. And, you know, there's this whole movement of effective altruism that says, like, you don't want, you know, if you really want to help, donate to more abstract data driven things than the things that tug at your heartstrings. Is there is there a conflict there? I mean, not necessarily. It's all about what you believe, right? So if you are following effective altruism and you really you know believe in it, and I guess you should, then uh, then uh, it also works. It's just the kind of if it's too vague, right? It cannot be vague. Like just give money and you don't know what happens to it. I, I think in this way, actually, effective altruism can be very good because it's very specific about where the money is going and what, how is it changing the world, right? Mm. So you really have to be able to imagine the effects. If it just goes somewhere and you have no idea where or your time goes somewhere and you don't, don't really know what you've done uh, mm. and how you have, have cont contributed, then this is not the best. It's really good if you can easily imagine the results of, uh, of your donation or of your time. Mm -hmm. And it also seems to be a big part of, of uh, sort of intention and agency. Like you, you say that your, your husband participating in his organization's Habitat for Humanity drive doesn't derive the same, you know, altruistic boost as if he you know, organized it or, or took the initiative on something. Yeah, so I mean, the case here was that um, basically his company once a year had this uh, uh, centrally organized event when everybody was volunteering, and certainly it also helps. It's not like that gives you nothing or it doesn't boost your health or your mental well-being or so on. It, it does, but it's just much stronger uh, if you have this agency to choose what you are doing with your time, what you are doing with your money. If uh, if you are the one who chooses the case uh, and the cause uh, in which you believe. Belief, right. So if you are forced to donate your money to something you don't really care that much about, it's not the same. You have to really have this kind of feeling that uh, this is something you care about. Right. And, you know, and the thing that I hope people do not take from the book is what people have taken around nutrition, where they're like, you know, counting how many uh, you know, international units of sulforaphane did I get from these <laughs> broccoli sprouts? 
right? So that like I'm going to organize my life. So I'm going to oh, I'm going to volunteer here because it's going to improve my longevity and, and reduce my uh, interleukins. Um, so I love how you how you end the book. Um, you know, I mean, so I still, yeah, I, I still hope that even if people start with this initial photo cam, we're going to volunteer because it will help my uh, my inflammation levels or something like that. I still feel that you would have to be extremely uh, antisocial or really disconnected from, I know you guys, your emotions to not at some point uh, do it just because it feels good, right? So even if your initial motivation may not be, maybe for your health, I, I still believe that for the vast majority of people, uh, it will still end up being something that's just good and pleasurable and, and uh, they will end up doing it not just for their uh, cytokines or for their cardiovascular health, but also just just because it feels good. Yeah. And I guess in those in those in a two ways, it seems like this is this could be much more revolutionary for our species than the things we know about good, you know, good eating, which, you know, when people start eating better, they experience less pleasure initially, mm. <laughs> right? Because they're not getting all the dopamine hits from the, the highly processed food and they're doing it typically solo. And so in this case, being altruistic gives you the immediate pleasure hit um, and it's more it's much more contagious. So I see these as, as much more highly leverageable strategies for human well-being than mm. the, the things I've been pushing all these years. I mean, I definitely challenge you, you know, to try to meet with your friends so only for your health reasons. You know, it's impossible. Mm. You know, right. It's like that, that you will you will have a good time. You know, you cannot avoid that or just, you know, try to be kind without uh, only purely for your uh, for, for your immune system. It doesn't work that way. You will feel pleasure and happiness out of it. It's just uh, it's just impossible. Otherwise, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And I think, you know, what the gift the book has given to me is there have been pockets in my life where I have enjoyed myself and felt guilty, right? Whether it's hanging out and not doing anything like taking a day off mm. or skipping a run or running with Gary, that there, there's a way in which this this understanding helps me completely drop that guilt. And simply, you know, as, as you say, the last, um, you know, seven words of the book are be social, care for others, enjoy life. Mm, exactly. Or, you know, right. going to some, I don't know, local events in your in your community, you know, it is a health behavior as well. You're connecting with your neighbors, uh, you're strengthening the community. This is this is also health behavior, even if you're skipping your run for that. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, I think what we're talking about is health is not an individual phenomenon. Right. And we try to think it is like I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to eat organic on a sick planet in which most people are you know, miserable and unhealthy and wealth is distributed inequitably and the climate is in danger and seas are polluted. But I'm going to be healthy. And mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is health is you know, that makes no more sense than to saying, well, the the, the skin cells of my right left <laughs> pink, you know, my my right pinky are very healthy, but I, you know, I have diabetes and heart disease. 
Exactly, that's uh, that's totally true. And you know, that as uh, I also write in my chapter about Japan, there there is also powerful research showing that inequality in a society is bad for everyone's health, and not just for the those who are the most um, you know at the bottom of uh, the social, um, the, the most poor ones, uh, the more poor, poor and disadvantaged people. It's also actually really bad for the most privileged people, which is kind of counterintuitive, perhaps. But the lack of trust and lack of cohesion and bonding in society uh, neg- impacts their health in a negative way as well. So uh, the Japanese are really, uh, the longevity the researchers with, with whom I've talked uh, actually really put a lot of, um, uh, a lot into it, this kind of inequality in society as a driver of health problems as well for everyone. Uh, so exactly, it's all very much interconnected. Yeah, boy, I hope Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk read this. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, so how can people find you, follow you, uh, stay stay up on what you're what you're working on? And I know you have a, a website for the book that's got all these resources. Yes. So the website for the book is www.growingyoungthebook.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is mzaraska. So it's M-Z-A-R-A-S-K-A. Okay, uh, I'll include that in the show notes. Um, what What are you working on now? You got new new project in the hopper? Uh, yes, I am writing. I mean, I'm working on uh, a third book proposal right now, and it's uh, also on the more optimistic kind of side of spectrum. So it's it's drawing in a, on a similar uh, spirit as as growing young. Great. And um, what's what's the uh, reception been? For this book, uh, was it? Uh, you know, I, I know it couldn't have come out at sort of a worse time in terms of, you know, t- book tours and and publishers' uh, resources, but it couldn't have come out at a better time in terms of timeliness. So, what, what have you seen in the world? I mean, it's far too early to tell because it's just been published. And the problem is also that, as you've mentioned yourself, then that in these early days, um, the, it takes a very long time for people who purchased my book to actually re- receive it physically because mm. the post is very slow. But the, the, so far, the, 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 anybody who has uh, read it so far, I've only, I've only heard some very positive, um, positive uh, opinions, which, of course, makes me very, very happy. Great. And um, like have media been receptive to the idea. It seems like the sort of thing that that certain outlets would really want to push as a narrative right now. I mean, I certainly, you know, there, it was in The Guardian, it was The Washington Post, The Discovery Magazine as well. And so there was already some and so much more is uh, planned as well. Great. Well, you know, any, I want to, everybody should just go get this book and read it as soon as it comes. Um, it's it's revolutionary. And um, it's you know changed my mind about a bunch of things, changed how I'm going to practice, and um, I am so appreciative for for the work you've done. Clearly, this was a, a labor of many years, uh, lots of travels. You, the book is also really fun. It's well written. It's got stories, um, anecdotes, and so I. Uh, you know, I thank you so much for for enriching my life and so many people's lives with this work. Thank you so much, Howard. I really, really appreciate it. All right. Well, um, go uh, be social, uh, help others have fun. And I will. Uh, I've been inspired to do the same. So th- thank you so much. Thank you. 
All right. I hope you found that as mind blowing as I did. I hope you'll go get the book Growing Young by Marta Zaraska. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission of the show, help us reach more people, you can, of course, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free. Just takes a minute. Helps out a lot. You can also share this in other episodes on social media and via email. You can uh, become a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution. You can just go to plantyourself.com slash gift to support us financially, because a reminder that this show is free for those who can't afford it and supported by those who can a line which I shamelessly stole from The Guardian newspaper. So the garden is in full bore. If I were not doing other work, I would be out there supporting Mia working uh, nine to five or, or more like six to six to eleven and four to eight because it's getting really, really hot. Yesterday, the heat index went up past 110. Um, but we've got cucumbers coming in all kinds, uh, tomatoes, um, the basil, of course, blueberries, I would say is uh, getting close to done. We're still getting a few pounds of those a day. And I actually saw a couple of young figs on one of the figs, fig trees that has never uh, borne fruit, edible fruit before. And the other thing is we, we planted kind of expensive these uh, gumi bushes, which last year gave us lots of berries, tiny little tart, sweet berries. This year they've given us nothing. But then like in the backwoods and running on the road, I noticed that they're like basically this uh, invasive species, like Russian olive growing everywhere. And every tree and every bush except the one in our garden is like laden with these fruits. So there you go. Uh, in running news, um, I have not been doing a lot of running the last few days. Instead, I've been hauling wood and starting to split it for for winter. We had a lot of felled red oak trees in due to all the, the rain this um, this spring and summer and got a bunch of them chainsawed into logs. And so carrying them up, uh, putting them in a little cart, pulling them up the hill through the ruts and then taking an axe and splitting them into firewood, I think counts as exercise. <laughs> it certainly feels a lot harder and uh, more many more aching muscles than just going for a jog. So thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali, Don the Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his gorgeous Cora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. I got another couple this week, but I haven't gotten permission to thank them by name. So you're just going to have to wait with bated breath. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Polkanovsky, David Isaac, Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Randall Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Southley, Claire Adams, Tom Franchek, Tina Benham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati. Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lannis, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Beacon, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Uchia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Julian Watkins, Rito Collins, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Yacht, Holm Hedegaard, Susan Watt, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor. 
Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hastland, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Hummel Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McIntyre, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carts. Deanne Bishop, Bilberry Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gummerine Hagen, Tracy Gullers, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Roger, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoruska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica. Oh, I ran out of space. Ran out of breath there. Let's give her the full do here. Erica Piedra, thank you and thank everyone for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.